one. Hey everybody and welcome to Twig 34. We are here with Eric Kress and Adam Telfer. Unfortunately, Mishka has a little bit of illness in the family, so he's not going to be able to join us this week, but we definitely miss him and we will see him next week uh, on our regular, as, as per our regular podcast. But um, guys, what's, what, what's going on? Anything Anything new in the in the Eric Kress or Adam Telfer world in the last week? Hmm. Let's see. Oh, my son, who's in this AAU basketball uh, league, uh, as a third grader, mind you, um, was like sixteen and zero uh, against third graders, and they lost two games this weekend, and one was to San Francisco Rebels, which is their nemesis. So it's kind of a sad weekend, and I think I I think I'm more upset than my son is, but uh, you know. Uh, I think I'll, I'll survive, you know, and then we'll go play them at the Coca-Cola Classic in Anaheim in a few weeks, and we'll hopefully get our revenge. Sounds fun. Uh, what's going on your world? Um, actually, not too much. Uh, I'm actually just about to jump on a plane and head to Europe for a little European tour for the next couple of weeks, uh, which I'm pretty excited about. But um, besides that, actually, picking up a whole bunch of different indie games on Switch has been kind of my day-to-day uh, katana zero and switch i don't know if you checked it out but uh, amazingly crafted game and actually really good as one of those kind of eight hour you play it you finish it you put it down type of games so i definitely recommend it right i've just been um i, I bought legend of zelda a long time ago but finally getting into it it's actually quite good it's amazing. my kids are enjoying quite a, quite a lot as well wow man but, you're you're super late dude <laughs> very late yeah I, I got it right when it came out too but anyway, for this week, we are going to cover four articles. Uh, the first is Playtico doubles down with new casual games division from GamesBeat. The second, we're going to talk about the new Nintendo game, Mario Kart Tour. Uh, the beta has arrived, complete with plenty of microtransactions uh, reported by The Verge. Third is Tencent and Riot Games developing mobile version of League of Legends by Reuters. And I think... Uh, we will also quickly cover Apex Legends is coming to mobile devices. And finally, we will close with Call of Duty 2020 in upheaval as Treyarch takes over plans Black Ops 5. And so I think we'll just go ahead and start with the first, first article about Playtica. And basically, this article is about Playtica launching an independent division focused on casual games. As many of you know, Playtika is, you know, very, very big, very successful social games company based in Tel Aviv, Israel. And the company has had a history of doing acquisitions, most recently acquiring Wuga and Super Treat as part of this casual games effort. But the core of, of, of this effort, what they are calling the casual games lab, was the acquisition of a company called Jelly Button two years ago. And so this new lab is about 150 developers in total in Tel Aviv and London, and they plan to launch several new games a year. And it seems like the focus based on interviews is going to be on rapid game prototyping and development. And my own take in terms of this specific opportunity is that um, it's not quite clear exactly what they're doing in, in the sense that they're claiming that they've developed a new model for rapid game development. It, it sounds a lot like what's happening in the hyper-casual space. So not exactly sure what they mean by that, but uh, it's it's very interesting in, in terms of like their current organizational structure. So Playtika now has uh, 16 locations around the world, 2,500 employees, 
And so while, you know, for me, it's, it's interesting that they're going to start this hyper-casual effort. I, I think the more interesting part is the organizational design side in terms of having like this large distributed group that is going after multiple opportunities and just kind of seeing what they do in terms of what functions that they centralize, how they coordinate amongst the various studios and with the people that they have distributed globally. And I know we've spoken, you know, a, a fair amount about glue, but this is kind of like the anti-glue s- strategy where glue is kind of centralizing in San Francisco. So for me personally, this, this news is most interesting from a strategy and management perspective. And, you know, we'll see how these different models play out over time. But that's my take. Uh, Adam, what, what do you think? Yeah, so I'm definitely going to be biased here just because, um, yeah, I used to work at Wuga. Uh, Wuga is one of the key acquisitions here. Um, so uh, definitely cheering for those guys uh, as they work together with Playtika. Um, and as far as I know, from talking with um, Wuga colleagues, that everything kind of went really, really well with that acquisition, uh, that they, they really handled that quite well. So, um, yeah, I, I'm definitely saying kudos to those guys and, and what they're working on. Um, kind of the, the current status of Playtika in terms of the casual space, they really don't really have any games in the top top categories or top 100 grossing. Um, so if we look at kind of the top casual games like by Peak or Zynga or, or by King, this type of thing, those, those are the games that are actually staying within the top 100 Um the games within Playtika, I think the top one they have is June's Journey, which is the Wuga hidden object game. And that's top, I think, 110 uh, in the U.S. Um, so it's good to see kind of Playtika driving value overall from their acquisitions and kind of bringing them all into their kind of central hub. Um, interesting that you read through it to, to kind of bring it over to hyper casual space, um, because that was kind of counter to what I read through it, because... Um, I guess if, if I was play Tika and, and seeing what they're they're amazing at, it would be bringing into uh, central operations more machine learning and marketing and live operations. Um, that's kind of the way that I read into it. So actually seeing that um, guys like Wuga, guys like uh, Jelly Button, uh, bringing in centralized UA functions, centralized machine learning around those types of games, because especially in the matching space, uh, machine learning can have massive impact, especially on merchandising, live operations, churn prediction. Um, these casual games, especially with kind of the more simple event designs, um, small de- small design changes in how you balance those events and how you uh, make sure those events are actually personalized um, are very, very important. Um, but yeah, overall, it's it's nice to see with Playtika kind of increasing their investment in the casual space. Um, it's also kind of another sign as we've been talking through all these previous podcasts, this is definitely a seller's market right now in mobile. Uh, and that's exactly, uh, happening even in casual space. So, uh, one of the uh, recent ones would be, you can, uh, you can go into jam city. That was probably a very good acquisition, uh, for jam city. And I would definitely start to speculate more around where Playtika is moving. Uh, so I guess the question to you guys is for Playtika and their acquisition strategy, uh, how how big do you think they're aiming? What, what what dollar amount do you think they're trying to 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 spend in terms of acquisitions? Is that a question for me? 
<laughs> I think it is a question for both of us. But uh, Eric, before you start, just just a quick um, quick clarification on my side. I, so I guess what I was saying earlier is that I, I don't necessarily think that, the, you know, I'm not saying that from a product strategy perspective that they're going to go into hyper casual. It just seemed from a, how they were describing their development process that it, it really seemed to be more of a hyper casual type of game development process that they were describing. And then one quick clarification on Yukin. So Yukin actually was not sold to Jam City, but their Bingo, what Bingo Pop, Bingo Blitz game was, was sold. So Yukin is still kind of independent and, and you know, kind of trying to make uh, games based out in Toronto. So they're still around. But Eric, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, they the way I read it, Platika was acquired by a big consortium of Chinese companies. So in essence, they might have almost unlimited budget to, to spend on acquisitions, potentially, you know, but uh, it's unclear as to how aggressive they want to become because, you know, something like you have this list and I apologize for using it, but Playrix and Peak are just so big, you know, like, I don't know if they can afford those type of deals, but if they're backed by Alibaba and all the giant and all these other companies, they could acquire pretty much anything, you know, to some degree. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. I, I guess the smaller sizes would be more like, seriously, Visor, the guys who produce Klondike. Um, but I, I don't know. I, on this hyper-casual stuff, I'm not sure if I would go down that route as Playtika. Like, if you think about their core competency within the social casino, um, I think that actually maps pretty well towards the matching game space. Um, and if you bring on all these companies within casual, within matching and kind of matching hybrids, uh, then, you know, you can kind of build out a, a central competency across these games. And I think going towards hyper casual is just so drastically different. Um, I say that, uh, at the same time with huge, uh, the other social casino company, they've had some success within hyper casual. So maybe they're kind of following suit and this is just kind of seen as a, uh, a separate business case that they're just trying to build out. But um, no, that I would still push towards the same model that they're going with, with the acquisitions of guys like Wuga. Um, so picking up guys like seriously GSM visor, um, maybe even if they go with the jam city model of just acquiring game teams, specifically um, Plarium um, does have that lost Island game. Yeah. I actually wouldn't be surprised if, if they were the ones that take out play Ricks, you know, um, so I, I know one of the brothers is moving to Israel. So yeah, but Playworks is like a three three and a half billion dollar deal, probably. You know, it's didn't huge. you say they have unlimited budget now with the Chinese? <laughs> no, no, I'm saying no, no. Okay, I'm saying it is possible, but I'm saying like, is that is that something that they're able or willing to do? You know, at that scale. Anyway, I I, I do like this strategy. I've said a million times, like the city state model works for me. It seems to work for studios historically, rather than having the centralized thing like glue does so i i do agree that that they seem to be working with a good strategy or the people are, are at the top are, are are looking at the the market in the right way it seems like there there also seems like a lot of companies are going after the same type other companies you know like they're looking at the profitable games you have like zynga netmarble scopely jam city platika and all the other asian companies you know, it's getting very competitive and as you said, it's a seller's market to some degree for any like relatively successful studio, like, you know, profitable studio. You know, but the one thing that really does bug me a little bit is like how many acquisitions have we seen of Asian companies, you know, acquiring U.S. and European companies, Supercell, Epic, 
Playtika, Kabam, Miniclip, Riot, etc. You know, Tencent alone has acquired some of the most, the biggest jewels of the West in terms of development. You know, how many acquisitions have you seen of U.S. European companies of Asian companies in the gaming space? I can't think of one. You know, it's like the problem is the most. It's almost impossible to acquire Chinese, Korean, and Japanese companies. There's so much restrictions on foreign investment in local companies that that it's just it creates this uneven playing field that just doesn't seem fair to me. You know, I, you know, I'm not a very political person, but it seems that you know rather than spending this time with this bullshit loot box regulation, you know, should look at the overall rules for foreign investments in European and North American companies, you know, and it's just a little bit annoying and frustrating that we're like not playing on the same uh, playing field at all with these uh, Asian, Asian companies. So anyway, that's my little rant. All right, folks. So we can expect Eric to be tweeting at, at uh, Trump pretty soon here uh, for, <laughs> for his next initiative. <laughs> But uh, with that, we can take it to the next article, which is Mario Kart Tour's beta has arrived, complete with plenty of microtransactions. And so, you know, very simply, Mario Kart Tour is now in closed beta in Japan and the U.S. Interesting, it's exclusive on Android uh, in, in terms of the beta with a planned release sometime over the summer. And as far as what we can tell so far about the game, just watching YouTube videos and things of that nature... It seems to leverage familiar characters and tracks from previous Mario Kart console titles. It seems to have one-touch controls. And the game does have uh, gacha, a.k.a. loot boxes. And that is, to me, not very surprising that they have used gacha instead of, instead of a premium upgrade model since uh, Nintendo has been pretty vocal about how they considered Super Mario Run as not being very successful as it failed to produce what they called, quote unquote, an acceptable profit. And so my take on this is that having worked, you know, sort of in the runner market and in racing and kart racing uh, and studied the kart racing market for a bit, I can say it's very difficult to monetize. These are largely gameplay focused types of games. And a lot, of those, a lot of games that are more gameplay-focused generally tend to monetize much more strongly through ad monetization rather than IP. So given Nintendo's attitude towards aggressive monetization and the fact that they most likely will not uh, include ad monetization, I suspect that this game will not monetize super strongly. So no doubt this game does very well, in, 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 in my opinion, from a downloads perspective. But it does seem like it'll be monetization light, but the volume, the sheer massive volume for this game probably makes up a lot. So I'll hand it over to you guys, Eric and Adam. But, you know, before you guys kind of weigh in on this article, I also just want to hear uh, your take in terms of a, you know, first year revenue predict prediction from each of you. So in, in terms of like how much net revenue does a game make in its first first 12 months? And, and I'll go ahead and start by predicting that I think this game does about 60 to 80 million net. Eric? All right. Um, I'm not going to give you my number until later, but uh, <laughs> because I, there's always a story behind this, because I've been looking at this stupid game forever, and I've been looking at Nintendo's mobile, uh, I don't know, their efforts in mobile for, for what, two or three years now? So I'm a bit torn. You know, I've been really, really negative on Nintendo's efforts on mobile. You know, Fire Emblem was the exception, because again, it was designed with play to win and core mechanics and core gameplay, right? Which is a completely different animal than the rest of Nintendo's products to some degree. You know, Mario was destined to be a disaster because runners notoriously don't make money. 
and their unlocking mechanism was just ridiculous. Um, although the game was quite good, Animal Crossing was a huge opportunity missed by them because the core mechanics of that game kind of just lend themselves to free to play, but it was wasted. You know, they just didn't put the right uh, monetization in. And Mitomo was ridiculous, right? I mean, I, I don't know what they were thinking. Um, so my my expectations on this game was that they were going to take a Animal Crossing approach um, and not put very aggressive monetization design in it, uh, particularly because it's a core Nintendo franchise. And that was kind of their mantra originally. But to your point, this is what exactly happened is they tried this with their other games. It didn't work. So now they're entering in the gotcha mechanic in one of their core franchises. So I was wrong. Okay. So on the one hand, they're introducing a gotcha system in the game, which is positive from a revenue perspective. But on the negative side, their fans are watching this and they are pissed, right? They don't want this thing in their game. So in some ways, it feels a lot like Star Wars Battlefront situation where the fan base is so pissed off that you've, you've, you've lost them and then you don't even have a design in the game that actually could monetize all that well. So you're kind of pissing off both constituents. Like you're not going to monetize the core, uh, uh, you know, the whales and you're pissing off your core consumer. So they're kind of like damned if they do, damned if they don't stuff. I mean, they got to go either all in or not at all is kind of the, the my thinking in some ways. So and, and the other thing is, so while they have this gotcha system that helps you progress, it, se- it seems early on, but it is early, that you don't really need to spend to progress. So again, you've pissed off your entire core base of users by introducing this nonsense, and then you don't have a system that monetizes the whales. That's the big point here, is kind of my thing. So, and anyway, and finally, these cart games have not done well in Western markets. You know, QQ is really doing exceedingly well in China, but there, there's not many other games that comp. Like, so for example, you know, Sorry, the, the, you know, like something like Angry Birds Go, which I wish Mishka was here, did like 200 million downloads and like 15 million in revenue. It was ridiculous, right? Um, and and the one thing that we have to keep in mind is that Japan will monetize no matter what, right? So Japan just seems to spend without reason on this stuff. Like, for instance, for Animal Crossing, a game which was a complete disaster for them, you know, 80% of the revenue for, was from from Japan. And they average like $8 per download versus 80 cents for the US. So just insane amount of spending there. So here's the conclusion. I'm not really sure what to think here. You know, my initial numbers have always been 200 million downloads and 100 million in revenue. I've been kind of fixated on that type of idea. 50 cents RPI. Primarily, most of the revenue will come out of Japan. So now I'm kind of sticking with the 200 million. And now I'll stick, maybe give them some a little bit of upside because they actually have a system that I actually can monetize versus what they've done before. So I'm going at 150 for 12 months. There we go. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, so with this game in particular, this one definitely hits pretty close to home for me. Um, I'm a massive fanboy of Nintendo. For all the games that Miska doesn't play, I play them all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I definitely played Zelda on day one. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with this game in particular, what really annoys me is just it just kind of shows about how Nintendo is approaching mobile design and uh, really kind of hits my wheelhouse in economy design and gotcha design and just shows that they're, they're not really thinking straight in that direction. Um, yeah, so in terms of predicting how successful the game will be, it's tough because regardless of microtransactions and backlash, this game is going to get a ton of downloads regardless. The comp would be to to Mario Run. Um, 
the gameplay looks actually pretty solid um, as a one finger kind of control to Mario Kart. Um, it looks actually pretty fun just to, to, to play. And I think similar to Mario Run, like it's going to be a well-crafted game. Um, it also has a very strong PvP focus, which I definitely agree with. Um, and all of, say, like the classic characters, classic tracks, classic uh, tools are all repurposed. Uh, so that's good. It's really going to f- feel like a, a proper Mario Kart game. But um, yeah, in, in terms of predicting the revenue, I'm going to expect the revenue per install to be roughly about the same as somewhere between Mario Run and Animal Crossing. Um, nothing above that, just based on how it's kind of run. So with Mario Run, they had about 150 million downloads in the first year. Um, so I would expect a relatively low RPI within that first year. So I'm probably going to say, if if we're all doing bands here, I'm going to do 80 million to 100 million. Um, that's my band. Everybody wow, agree with that? What's that, sir? Oh, we, we agree. We, we, we've got the exact same prediction, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that would be my band in terms of, so a little over 50 cents RPI. Uh, Mary Run was something like 25 cents. Um, just based on the the gotcha mechanics there, and I think overall maybe they'll hit t- they'll, they'll take some hits on downloads just based on kind of the fanboy saying you know this you you have loot boxes and you have loot boxes that give gameplay advantage. I'm not going to play this game. Um, that's fine. You know maybe they'll try it and maybe you'll convert a small percentage of them. Uh, but then you with something like Mario Kart, you've got this huge tertiary audience outside of those Nintendo fanboys, uh, which are going to pick up and play this game regardless, right? And and uh, that audience most likely is a little bit more um, used to MTX like this. Um, so I'm saying it, that the the massive backlash will have impact, but I don't think it'll be at the same level as something like Battlefront 2. Um, but yeah, going into the actual economy, um, this looks pretty garbage. Um, so the way that it works is that there's um, basically you, you you grind tracks, you grind, you grind PvP matches to earn... Uh, racer points or something like this to actually unlock the tracks themselves. Um, so as you're kind of grinding, what you're trying to do is collect characters with a loot box or gotcha mechanics um, to kind of collect all the characters and carts uh, and accessories that you want to actually race. Um, but the the benefit that they have is that each character in each cart uh, actually comes with basically a benefit to play on specific tracks. So, yeah, if you want to play on the Luigi track and you want to win there, then you're going to need Luigi. So every time you play online in PvP, if you're not playing as Luigi and everybody else is playing as Luigi, you're sitting there thinking, well, why the hell don't I have Luigi? Uh, The gotcha overall doesn't really seem to have a clear value for duplicates, but I'm still going to research that because that that would be kind of the key component about how this game is going to monetize is whether it does have a duplicate system. Um, because if you think back to Brawl Stars and kind of the, the main um, issue that I had there with that initial economy was that the duplicate system was was pretty painful. Um, and if in here, it looks like they've got something like uh, 100 different collectibles to go after. So they've got more than Brawl Stars, at least at launch. Uh, but at the same time, if you've got no kind of good outlet for those duplicates, it can feel like a really, really painful drop. I think that's kind of my overall take on the loot box system is that, sure, you've got the components. You've checked off the list for building a monetizable economy that can actually last. But at the same time, 
you've probably built one of the more painful ones, especially from a player experience situation. Um, yeah, it's kind of clear why they went down this path in terms of making you know Luigi good on the Luigi track. It's because um, Mario Kart really isn't built for what I would say a wide gotcha or wide loot box economy in terms of actually having reason to collect everything because that's really what drives any loot box economy you, you need to be able to like you need a compelling reason why you need everything out of those boxes otherwise it can get quite painful quite quickly um so mario isn't really that well differentiated from luigi and isn't all that well differentiated from bowser to be honest um so the there's no real reason to play with both uh, besides kind of cosmetic reasons. So they really added this kind of explicit thing to say you have to play with Luigi on this track uh, to kind of drive that width, uh, which I get, but at the same time feels super tacked on. And I don't really see that as a strong player experience, nor um, nor as a really strong, compelling monetization driver because it's really based on that bonus. Um, and variance is only coming with the specials. And again, like the, the specials have this thing where really there's only a couple special items that I really want. Like I'm just going to get the character that has the red shell. I don't really care who else I get as long as I get one with a red shell. So yeah, overall the, the economy player experience wise is going to be pretty bad uh, unless they change it substantially. And I would say that what's kind of annoying about this is that they did have plenty of comparative economies that they could have pulled from or at least been inspired by um and and to your point eric and and jk before right like most of these games don't have amazing rpis but they they do have more competent ones than i think that uh mario kart could actually end up with like kalu space ape angry birds rovio uh qq have all created different economies and um, for one aspect, you don't need loot boxes in this. You can paste them in other ways. You can paste them using things like skill-based competitions. You can paste this thing, just making it so you have to grind tournaments in order to collect the coins in order to do this stuff. But uh, they're leaning pretty heavily on loot boxes, and the outputs from loot boxes are pretty painful from a player experience perspective. So, yeah, um, I have, if I were Nintendo at this point, I would take a look at this economy, reset it, and really take a focus on which aspect you want to go after. Do you want to try to please your fanboys, which from my situation will be pretty impossible on mobile to be successful and please your fanboys? Or do you focus this on, say, your tertiary, tertiary audience, especially, say, something in Asia, which you've already worked out, so Japan, maybe even China, and taking something like QQ Speed as a reference? And I think that's where you'd have far more success as a as a game. That's my take. Cool. So it seems like we all landed on the same number, right? So, so you think eighty to hundred million? Uh, you know that, that that was the same as me, and, and Eric uh, is is predicting hundred million. So yeah, that that's. Oh no pretty... no, I'm I'm moving mine up to one fifty. Oh, you're moving up only, to one fifty. Okay, all right. Only so again because of even, even though your comments were the most negative. I know <laughs> you've got the highest. I know. <laughs> I, the only reason I'm doing this is because. They actually have a monetization system. I didn't think they would have really a, uh-huh. any type of monetization system. And the Japanese guys are going to spend like crazy on it, you know, regardless of what it is. And so we'll, we'll right. see. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I just, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's, what, this what, game is really think? impossible to predict. <laughs> that's that's right. the problem. Is like the, the numbers are so big in this game. And as you said, like how how the Japanese audience will actually spend. If, if Nintendo gives them a compelling reason to to spend like with a decent amount of spend depth, 
you know they're going to do it regardless of how painful the economy feels. Right. Adam, instead of going like the, the QQ, more aggro monetization route, what, what do you think if they would have just copied more of the Fortnite route using like a battle pass system, you know, sort of season subscription based, something like that? You mean just, are you talking about just cosmetics? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of how they dress up, how they sell cosmetics, they can, they can go as crazy as they want, but yeah, that's, that's not going to drive revenue, significant amounts of revenue. Um, the one advantage they have is the network effect of having so many people playing and seeing each other's. Yeah. I think that would be far riskier than what they've got now. Cool. All right. Moving on to the next article, Adam. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I've actually done a double article here just because I think it's kind of a, uh, it's worth pulling together these two trends. Um, so the first article is that Tencent and Riot Games are developing a mobile version of League of Legends. And the second article is that Apex Legends is coming to mobile devices. So yeah, the article summary is that everybody is coming to mobile. Um, and as, as Eric has mentioned before, um, you know, everybody wants console games on mobile. So that's going to be an exciting time is that as players actually start taking all these PC and console games, start moving it to mobile, uh, everybody's going to be playing these games, even though Eric says nobody wants them. Uh, so the first article is on League of Legends. Uh, Tencent and Riot, owned by, well, Riot is actually owned by Tencent, is making a mobile version together. Um, they speculate that there's been a strained relationship between Tencent and Riot as Tencent has published a number of mobile MOBAs competing directly with League of Legends. So example, Honor of Kings. Uh, Riot needs to capitalize in Asia. Um, this, is, this move is an absolute no-brainer to me uh, overall. Um, and clearly this strategy is off the back of Fortnite success um, because any game at a higher player numbers are considering this port to mobile. Um, but the question for me is, just how bad the controls will be. Um, at the end of the day, League of Legends is actually far more complicated to control than Fortnite. So that will be pretty difficult for them to decide. And I think the game might succeed despite the controls, but at the same time, it'll be interesting to see how they kind of compact the controls to a mobile device. Uh, and the second question is how this will actually fare in the West. Um, and as we've seen from uh, PUBG Mobile and all these other different ports of Battle Royale games to mobile. Um, it will most likely fare a lot weaker in the West, um, but at the same time, it will probably succeed in the East. Um, article number two is regarding Apex Legends. So EA and Respawn have decided to make a port to mobile, um, but overall there's been no clear developer, no clear timelines uh, in terms of how long this will take to make. Um, so Questions kind of coming from this article would be, who is the developer? Uh, because things like if they want to actually be big in China, which they should be, especially based on the success of things like PUBG Mobile, they should be partnering there to work within the regulation. Um, on top of this, the question is comparing it to Fortnite. So will this work as well as Fortnite? A uh, majority of Fortnite's audience is actually not really on um well, sorry, a majority of Fortnite's audience is more, say, on console, not on PC. Um, so as well as Fortnite has the advantage of having third-person controls, um, it's also much more focused on younger players that are more likely to play on, say, a tablet or a phone. So overall, I would say Fortnite's mobile port was a much easier transition for them, despite, say, 
as you've played it, the controls aren't great. Um, it's still very an, an awkward port towards mobile, but still easier than Apex. So yeah, th this starts to beg the question about how successful can these console ports to mobile or PC games to mobile actually succeed in the West? Uh, looking at kind of the the, the games that have done the, this transition successfully, PUBG Mobile is the top one. So currently it's actually sitting at the number one top grossing spot in the US on Android, uh, top 25 on iOS. Uh, Free Fire is another one that's in the top 50 uh, within Android. And then, of course, there's Fortnite sitting at number two, uh, grossing on iOS, uh, just under Candy Crush. So, yeah, there has been some success in terms of console ports moving over to mobile. Um, but at the same time, these have been pretty limited to Battle Royale games so far. So it'll be interesting to see if League can actually challenge that. Um, but overall, games with no kind of pay-to-win component and have a actually major existing game community to pull from PC console uh, are actually driving the momentum to make a successful port to mobile. Um, so both games, League of Legends and Apex, pass that test. But I think the key question is, does that actually mean that we can be sure of it? Uh, so Eric, uh, do you want to talk yeah, about Yeah, I mean, actually, your last statement is the, is really the key thing here, is that building, moving community from one place to another or just the zeitgeist around these absolutely massive games is helping them succeed on mobile because we've had free to play shooters on mobile, you know, for a decade now, um, or maybe not that long since 2013, you know, and they just haven't done well at all. But now these games are coming back and they weren't well on poor design games. I'm, I'm totally blanking on the name of it right now. But um, anyway, the, the point is, is that, yeah, these games are so huge that they're just getting that kind of attention and people are playing it mobile as an alternative or as the only type of way they can interface with the content, et cetera. So it's interesting. Um, for Riot, you know, Riot, my understanding with Riot is they've been debating on their second game forever, <laughs> you know, since this first game launched. Like they've been struggling to figure out how to actually execute against a, a, a new experience, you know, using their existing IP or, or creating a new one. And I think there's been fits and starts over the last decade that, that haven't gone anywhere. Um, bringing this game to mobile you know, does make a lot of sense and partnering with Tencent makes absolute sense because they're basically the same company and they have the right design guys there. Um, but I think their biggest risk has always been or their their concerns has been cannibalization. So they have all the success with their core game if they move it over to mobile and the monetization is weaker then they basically are converting their PC, you know, whales to you know, less monetization on mobile. And this is the same problem that's been happening numerous times, you know, uh, over the years. And so I think this has been their fundamental concern is that they will move people away from their, you know, cash cow. Again, I don't think this would make much money in Europe and North America, particularly, the you know, the Riot game. It's primarily a China-Asia uh, opportunity for them. Apex Legends. So Apex Legends is likely going to come. Uh, there's no chance that that I think that Respawn is going to be developing this. They likely will leverage a Tencent team. Again, I still think this is going to have really struggled to have much success in the West. I, part of the reason is because it's first person, right? I think first person is a little bit tougher uh, for mobile um, than the third person for Fortnite. Um, and again, the, the Tencent relationship is a little bit dubious to me. I mean, that's kind of the rumors that they're going to get some money from Tencent and get one of their teams to help build this. 
The problem with Tencent is they have so many different competing products that uh, they may not focus on on Apex versus PUBG or you know other games in their portfolio, Crossfire, etc. So I'm not really too sure exactly how that will manifest itself. I I hope that EA gets a big check, you know, so that they can you know you know leverage that IP and 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 I hope they do see some success. But I'm just a little bit concerned that it may not be right the product fit. The one notion though that I've heard is that. The, gov- the Chinese government objects to a lot of different content. So for World of Warcraft, for instance, like you can't have skeletons at all, right? So they have to modify the game of World of Warcraft for that particular market. And so I don't know if their objections are consistent. I think they're. I think it's a little bit in flux depending on who's in charge. But they had this issue with PUBG. The style of PUBG did not work, right? So they had to actually recreate it into some, you know, ridiculous type game in order to get it played, to get it uh published there so they can actually monetize maybe apex legend is less of an issue um from that perspective and maybe that will help um tencent push it more than some of its other franchises so that's kind of my quick take yeah from my perspective i I think i totally agree with you eric in terms of the risk of cannibalization especially in china so there's you know in my opinion a huge overlap between honor of kings and and league of legends players there uh, but, you know, certainly in the West, they will have the ability to grow the market, but uh, I just don't think it's going to do as well as they expect. And so while I can see like the game doing about like maybe top 80 to 120 grossing, I, I just I'm, I am a little bit skeptical about its ability to penetrate higher, just given, you know, the characteristics of the Western market and uh, preferences in terms of gameplay and things of that nature. Uh, in terms of your questions, Adam, with respect to controls, I actually like having played some of these MOBAs. I, I'm not as worried about the controls. Like, what, you know, I, I in the past I played uh, Mobile Legends Bang Bang for quite a while, and I, I thought the controls were quite good or good enough. And um, so, yeah, it's really in terms of like how well will the game fare in the West. I don't think it's going to be the huge success that they that they expect. Um, further, I, I also just think that while the sort of co-op play phenomenon that hit younger kids on Fortnite uh, will have some impact in, in grow, growing mobile, just not the same degree of impact for League of Legends, just given the meta complexity for League of Legends, which will then, which basically skews the audience older. So anyway, that, that's, that's my take. Um, should we go on to the next article? Yeah, sure. Um, so this is the article about Call of Duty upheaval so basically treyarch uh takes over black ops 5 from sledgehammer basically was the article and so the article reads kind of next year's call of duty has gone through a major upheaval as publisher activision has informed developers this week that the studios raven and sledgehammer will which had until now led the project will no longer be in charge instead um treyarch will lead development on the new black ops for 2020 so this is very, very bad for Activision, right? This is another development team in complete disarray. And this is a read that I had, I don't know, six months to a year ago in which ever since the, the former management has left, um, there's been some issues with the studio. Um, the other thing is you have to keep in mind is that Raven was primarily a content developer for Destiny 2 and Destiny 1. So they don't really have the capacity to create their own IP. So fundamentally... It's basically they're going to a two-year development cycle. Um, so 
what so let me step back. So what really happened here is that Glenn Schofield and Michael Condry, I think his name, how do you spell his name? They left uh, last year uh, in I think January, February, or March or something, um, and that created this huge vacuum. I think at the studio from from a management perspective, and it was kind of this beginning of the signs. And this is what the read was: is that likely, ultimately, they would go to a two development studio thing as as the sledgehammer started to kind of like deteriorate internally. Um, and the the problem here is that that Michael and, and Glenn, I I think the issues that they had with 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 the Call of Duty and with Activision, I'm not going to go into here because it's just not worth talking about, but. Fundamentally, they just had a disagreement on how they wanted to manage their their studio and how how they wanted to build their games, and so so what I think what I think is ultimately going to happen is this kind of article kind of confirms what I've been thinking all along is that Sledgehammer will likely be absorbed by Treyarch and 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 um, and the other studio, which uh, help me out here. What's the other studio that makes? Um, yeah, sorry, Infinity, Infinity War and, and Treyarch will absorb sledgehammer and then they will become a they'll build studio build a game every two years so they'll back go back to a two-year instead of a three-year cycle um meanwhile as as sledgehammer is kind of absorbed by these two studios michael condry who started his own studio a few blocks away for 2k is likely going to siphon off the best people right and so ultimately sledgehammer is kind of going to deteriorate to nothing that's what i think is ultimately going to happen and it's not good, right? I mean, it, it it actually does not create a lot of risk for this year's Call of Duty, but it creates a risk for next year's Call of Duty and 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 subsequent Call of Duties because now they're on a two year time cycle. You know, they couldn't get the sing, the single player game done last year, and they had three years to make this game. So now, what does that mean for single player going forward? Like, it creates a lot of risk. And the fundamental problem here is that from an investment perspective, all these bulls were thinking that 2020 was going to be their, you know, saving grace because 2019 looks terrible for them. Now there's risk to that game. And so that creates a lot of, uh, I don't know, that creates a lot of upset investors to some degree. So anyway, this goes back to the same thing I've been saying for like for, about Bioware and other studios that happens is that when you lose your big management, you know, your key leadership, that is kind of the buffer between you and, corporate bureaucrats, all things kind of end up unbreaking, you know? And so without the studio leadership that can help facilitate, you know, dealing with, with corporate, you just can't maintain a studio in, independently. And so the more the corporate comes after these, these studios and tries to have inputs into what they're doing, the ch more challenging it becomes to run. Um, and I'm just continuing to worry and worry about Activision and how this may actually ultimately be the same fate as Blizzard, right? So if Jay leaves, you know, the guy who's running Blizzard and now Activision is kind of dictating how they make products and stuff like that, people are not going to stick around, you know? And so I don't, I don't want to make a big leap here, but I think this is kind of an indicator of what's to come with Blizzard. And I think we likely will see issues like this crop up at Blizzard and it makes me more and more scared uh, on the Activision story. It's just in general. So I hope that was clear. But uh, what do you think, JK? So for me, I you know, it, it's hard to understand what actually happened. So like one, one interpretation in the way that I originally read it was that Activision may have been proactively stepping in to 
a mess between Sledgehammer and Raven. There were certainly a lot of rumors about cross-studio conflict there that had led to major delays. So whether it was that or whether they were reactively kind of acting upon this, you know, the, the management departures that you spoke to, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. But, uh, you know, they're, they're now in the situation that they're in, which is basically, to your point, a, a two-studio system where they're going to have to be delivering games on a two-year dev cycle, which is uh, definitely problematic. And so I assume that, that you know, that Activision will start trying to source a third studio to go back to that three-year game dev cycle. Um, and But that may be a mistake, which I'll touch upon in a bit, but, you know, Assuming that they do go this route, if I were Activision, the one thing that I would try to do is actually try to build something out of Eastern Europe or somewhere where there's a, a more favorable cost structure. So, you know, when we talk about the studios, Treyarch are in Santa Monica, Infinity Ward is in Woodland Hills uh, here in the LA area, Sledgehammer is in SF. So we're talking about, you know, very significant costs, although with those costs comes extremely high quality. Um you know, and, and sort of an interesting point, just, just kind of, uh, you know, going a little bit uh, tangentially for, for a minute was uh, in that article was concern about brutal overtime hours that they faced last year on Black Ops 4. So Blops 4 had three years and no campaign mode. So I, I, I did find that a little bit of a head scratcher in terms of like, you know, why was that? Why did they have so many brutal overtime hours for that? And then if they're now moving to a two-year cycle, then, then certainly it's going to be even worse. Um, and the final point I want to make is around uh, campaign modes in um, first-person shooters. And uh, I, I think, you know, there, there's there's kind of a fair argument to be made about whether it's, it's worthwhile to spend resources on something that, you know, certainly the players don't really care much for, at least, you know, in this genre, or at least at the current level of quality that we're seeing in Call of Duty. So I think the more strategic implication of not having a campaign mode and having a game more focused on gameplay is then thinking about what kind of uh, cadence of title actually makes the most sense. Like, does it make sense to just have, you know, uh, a, a game that's focused on multiplayer PvP every year or not. Um, and, you know, games like Fortnite that don't have a campaign mode are going to last for years. So how often do you actually need to update core gameplay? And will that in and of, of itself be enough to justify a new purchase upgrade, especially, you know, on that yearly cadence? And so my view on this is that... Um, is, is that Call of Duty is going to have to transition to a, a free-to-play live ops model very, very quickly. Um, but, you know, the, the concern would be that big companies like Activision, assuming I'm right on that, are generally slow to adopt, you know, fundamental structural changes. But uh, I certainly think that, the Activi that Activision's management team has been making a lot of smart moves for years, but we'll kind of see how this plays out. Um, Adam, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, let me, let me just jump in here real quick. So... Uh, I think that would be a freaking disaster. I'm sorry, JK. Like going free to play. Is just a... <laughs> well, you, you know, no. the space so than I here's do, the so. challenge, right? They basically tried to go free to play with this, 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 you know, um, yeah, blackout mode, blackout mode, right? And it was a freaking train wreck because they don't understand how to do that, right? And they're, they're, the whole system was broken from the get go. So 
I don't know. I've been giving a lot of thought to this recently because you know a lot of the investment community is concerned about all these free to play things, and there's some more free to play stuff coming down the pipe in the sports genre that sounds really scary for the market as a whole. Like it's really risky. Like on the sports side, it's not as risky because there's actually a model out there that works, right? This this ultimate team, you know, blue card based system and, and a pay to win type thing. The problem is there's no model out there that's been able to be replicated on the game side. And that's part of the reason why EA keeps failing over and over again with every new game. And Fortnite is kind of this false positive that, okay, if now all you have to do is create a free-to-play version of Call of Duty with a Fortnite model and we're off to the races, right? You know, redemption. You know, that's, it's just nonsense. It's not going to work that way, you know? So, so anyway, on the flip side, like they have to adopt and they have to uh, evolve by right, Call of Duty. And, this is the concern is they're kind of like stuck. So it, on my one mind of, of being this core gamer and older, I'm thinking they should just stay in their lane, right? Build this epic, you know, movie based type of experience, you know, this amazing single player experience with a great multiplayer mode and keep going down your lane, you know, because they're still doing 20 to 26 million units uh, every year. Right. Uh, uh, and it's a gazillion dollars. Right. And, and development costs have never been an issue. They could just spend as much money as they want on this because it just, it just prints money every year. Right. Um, so, you know, that's what my one side of thinking. The other side of thinking is that they need to like, yeah, go super core or they need to create an experience for the free to play community. Like, Bust out their their free to play mode and 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 get a team de- dedicated directly to that that can help monetize that. The problem with that strategy is that you start cannibalizing your existing sales. This twenty to twenty six million that you get every year, so they're 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 in a really tough spot. And now you have all this turmoil with the studios. Who knows who's managing what? Like you try to throw studios like that together with all these egos and and all these issues and no central management on Sledgehammer and like it's a disaster waiting to happen. Right? It's just not. It's not a great situation to be in in terms of what's going to come out in 2020, you know? And so anyway, this is a really tough one. Um, and I think Activision has, has kind of managed themselves into this corner uh, by by really consolidating around only one franchise for their core studios um, and, and Destiny to some degree because they have, you know, some people working on that. But it's... It, it again. It is going to be. A, it is a tough situation. There's no real right answer, um, but they need to work with what they have. And I think the first strategy of of, of staying in their lane will probably be the best the best one. And then finding a secondary team to try to figure out how to monetize Call of Duty on a free to play model um, without cannibalizing the existing thing. Uh, uh, but I don't know, dude. It's it's Activision scares the bejesus out of me right now because I know that we're going to see the same shit happen at Blizzard in the next like 6 months where people start bailing, Jay gets Jay gets kicked to the curb and like we're going to be it's going to everyone's going to be in uproar and everyone's going to be seeing the end of Blizzard and, and it's going to be a sad day for the gaming industry in my opinion. So, we'll see. Yeah, Eric, just to uh, comment on that. So, I, I totally agree with you that for these studios, the easier transition is to go that to you know what what you're talking about to develop campaign modes and 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 basically build out those kinds of games. But if if it doesn't make sense because they haven't been very successful at it so far, um, and if it's just you know if there is no campaign mode, what, what what do you think in terms of that? cadence of games what what does make sense or or are you saying that that should just be a free well first of all i would not say that the call of duty has not been successful right i mean they i mean they do over a billion dollars every year on call of duty 
Yeah, I, I meant more in terms of like the player reaction to the campaign mode. Um, well, I think everyone loves the campaigns. I mean, they, they to some degree, there's a certain audience that just absolutely loves the campaigns. And there's a big slew of the audience that never plays the campaign. All they do is play multiplayer. But I, I think they could differentiate themselves by creating a campaign mode that's super compelling, right? That is... The, and part of the reason I think Black Ops didn't sell as well as they thought is because the campaign mode was missing, which seemed, people seem to forget, right? Is that, like, that's why people play Call of Duty, you know, or a big slew of people. And that probably explains why they didn't grow the franchise instead of, you know, had slight declines, you know? So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm misunderstanding, maybe I'm not understanding your question. Yeah, no, no, I, th- I think you understood it. I, I, I guess may- maybe it's just all the people that I talk to are like hate, hate all the campaign oh, I see. No, I mean, movies, so maybe I'm hearing a very, uh, you know, uh, a very prejudiced view there. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, if, if that's the case, then I totally agree with you. If, 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 if you can get players to like the campaign. Yeah, I mean, you take a step that. back and you say, OK, forget Call of Duty for a minute. Let's look at the market as a whole. Right. Everyone's talking about these software as a service is the future of gaming, et cetera, et cetera. Yet. We have things like God of War, which did like 10 million units on PS4 alone, right? Or Spider-Man, which just destroyed it, right? Or, you know, all these Sony first party games are just killing it, right? So there is a, still a market for these epic adventures that are single player in in, in focus. Um, and, and again, that's what Call of Duty has done extremely well over the years is, is delivered on that type of experience. Um, so uh, I would, yeah. I think for them to go the other all the way to the to the online only type thing would be a very very scary thing in terms of <laughs> how much revenue they they can generate from that versus the 1.2 billion that they make on on Call of Duty every year. So that's what that's what's a little bit scary and I think that's part of their calculation too, you know, trying to figure out what to do next. So. But as you said that just kind of pushes them into a really really tight spot because if they if they mess up one year, right? And a competitor has that type of game in place, a free-to-play shooter, live ops, et cetera. Uh, they're going to lose substantial amounts of audience and they can keep going along their traditional path. I think that makes sense. Um, but it is, a, it is a weird discussion about how do they, do they create, say, a separate team or a separate product um, to kind of capitalize on the free-to-play shooter space that will most likely open up again in the future. Uh, and will mo- most likely cannibalize their COD sales. Yeah, no, I, I, I honestly, this one I don't know the answer to. I, w- I would. Here's what I would say: I would say trying to build that capability within the teams that they have right now seems to not be working. Um, and part of it is because they have so much legacy baggage on how they build games and how they monetize. They don't have the people in place that know how these systems work, like you, Adam. I mean, like. They should be hiring people like you to figure this stuff out and to build the absolutely perfect system that works. And if they don't want to implement it on the core Call of Duty, then build another game, you know, and and build have get another team so that they they can do both, right? But even that strategy is risky. So it's like I'm kind of talking in circles here because I don't know what the answer is here. And I, and I talked to some of the strategy guys at Activision; they don't know the answer either. Believe me, you know. They're like, they're like, they're completely like heads cut off, you know, running around with their heads cut off, trying to figure out what the heck to do next, because they're again in a really tough spot. But this for this approach of trying to like force feed these, these, these models into a game that's been in development. I mean, the same game has been designed like 10, what, 12 years in a row. Like, it's just, 
it's not working. Right. And so, um, and I, and I'm, I, I'm repeating myself and now we have complete dysfunction around the studio level. This is scary, right? Cause they can't execute against any strategy if, if everything's in disarray. So, um, I don't know. Bobby has his he, Bobby has a lot uh, a lot of work ahead of him to get this sorted out. I think. All right. Well, I think that's it, guys. Unless there are any concluding comments, that's a wrap for Twig right. Thirty Four. Have a good week. All right. See y'all later. Bye.